Hand me my sword. That's the name of our series that we are doing on the book of Nehemiah. We're in the process of unfolding or extracting eschatology from the Old Testament. Number 11, Conspiracy Against Nehemiah. Now his enemies weren't yet through. They continued to seek to hinder the work and to discourage Nehemiah. And so when Sanballat and Tobiah saw that the work was going on and the walls were almost complete and there were just a few breaches left in the walls that they sent a message to him saying, Come on down into one of the cities, one of the villages, that we might talk with you and that we might talk about peaceful coexistence for all. And Nehemiah said, I knew that they were intending evil on me, and they kept sending these demonic messengers. Come on down. We need to have counsel. We need to meet together. We need to talk things over so that we have an understanding Four times they sent this kind of a message, but Nehemiah just ignored it and said, I am too busy doing the work of God to take time to talk. And he did not delay the work, but just continued to rebuild. Folks, talk is cheap, and Nehemiah knew that ideation. Let's take a look at our overview for today. Number one, while work is at hand, talk is cheap. We're going to find out today in our lesson that one of the main techniques that an enemy will use is when they know that they're losing, they start coming up with fake peace talks. And that's number two. In the midst of war, peace talks tend to be tactics. Number three, discouragement is not an option in the heat of battle. Let's face it, when you're discouraged, the last thing that you want to do is draw your sword and go right back to the front lines and fight the battle. Discouragement is the gateway to passivity. Number four, leaders who flee in battle are cowards. All the people that follow any commander, any leader in the midst of a battle are counting on the strength, the hope, the victorious attitude of that leader to empower themselves to follow that leader right to the enemy's door. Number five, becoming frightened in battle is nothing more, nothing less than a sin. Let's review our scriptures for today. It's out of Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. And it tells us this. Now when it was reported to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab, And to the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and that no breach remained in it, 
although at the time I had not set up the doors and the gates. Then Sanballat and Geshem sent a message to me, saying, Come, let us meet together, Chephram, in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? They sent messages to me four times in this manner, and I answered them in the same way. Then Zambalat sent his servant to me in the same manner a fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. It is reported among the nations, and Gashum says that you and the Jews are planning to rebel. Therefore you are rebuilding the wall, and you are to be their king, according to these reports. You have also appointed prophets to proclaim in Jerusalem concerning you. A king is in Judah. And now it will be reported to the king according to these reports. So come now, let us take counsel together. Then I sent a message to him saying, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. When I entered the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehirabal, who was confined at home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you, and they are coming to kill you at night. But I said, Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save my life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that surely God had not sent him. But he uttered his prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He was hired for this reason, that I might become frightened and act accordingly and sin so that they might have an evil report in order that they could reproach me. Remember, O oh my God, to buy and send ballot according to the works of theirs, and also Nodiah the prophetess and the rest of the prophets who were trying to frighten me. Let's take a look at the forms of attacks. Number one, ridicule. Keep in mind that these six things that I am going to be sharing with you all stack up and have one particular goal in mind. And that is to frighten a leader, to frighten a follower. When fear becomes the most dominant force in a person's life, they begin to make stupid decisions. So ridicule is at the top of the pile. It begins to break down the self-view that God put in Nehemiah and the workers and builders of Jerusalem. 
Number two, intimidation. If ridicule doesn't work, they're going to do everything possible to intimidate and create fear. Number three, discouragement. After one submits to fear, discouragement will settle in. And once someone feels discouraged, they slip into morbid passivity. Number four, fear. Like I said, it all implodes upon one simple tactic. And that tactic that any enemy uses is to create fear in the lives of those who they are warring against. Number five, it turns into selfishness. When fear consumes the heart, selfish decisions become the norm of the day. Finally, fake peace. If none of the others work, they're going to come in with a fake peace deal, somehow attempting to deceive in the most clever way that all those within the war need to come to a peace agreement, begin working together as one unit. Well, we're going to discuss how that's just a tactic and a confession that the enemy is losing. After Nehemiah's enemies tried to attack from within through moral decline, the enemy shifts to a form of attack that was most deceptive. Global peace. When that failed, the enemy set up a conspiracy theory, a lie, to activate fear which, as fear is known, causes the heart to grow faint. As with most enemies, Nehemiah's attackers are relentless. If the threat of a sword doesn't do the trick, they quickly regroup and go for peace, peace, but it was a fake peace talk. Let's review our well-timed attack. Nehemiah, as chapter 6 reveals, was not living high off the hog. Understanding that he had been faithful to God and his king, a plot to defeat him was a constant threat he had to deal with every day. As Satan would hate to admit it, the peace tactic offered by Nehemiah's enemy was a significant turning point or Nehemiah's leadership. Since fake diplomacy didn't work, it was time for a new venue of attack, conspiracy. A type of diplomacy rooted in the greatest kind of deceit, that of planting lies within the hearts of Nehemiah's people. Now the madness method was used toward the end of the wall's completion shortly before their celebration of completing the wall. The enemy offers a peace deal, which is a confession by the enemy that they indeed are losing the battle. Now if their conspiracy trap doesn't work, they're up a creek without a paddle, and they knew it. I'll give the enemy this. They are persistent, always trying to break Nehemiah and his Jews down by wearing them out through lies, lies, and more lies. Fat, so often the enemy wants to chew up our time in futile meetings 
or in endless debates and discussions with those they are threatened by. This is a common approach that is used to this very day. When people aren't advancing in their part of the mission within the battle they have chosen to take on, they start lying through their depraved minds to somehow attempt to convince the person that they don't have what it takes to complete the mission. The approach they were using was a fruitless attempt. It was like a dried-up fig tree. However, it didn't stop them from proposing a ridiculous peace offering while having no intention to keep those peace agreements. In fact, they intended to harm Nehemiah. Remember when Nehemiah said, Come, let us meet together at Trephram in the plain of Ono. But they were planning to harm me. To that, Nehemiah sent a messenger with this message. I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Furthermore, Nehemiah didn't stop. Not for a moment. He didn't take time to go face to face with their proposal. When his people tried to protect Nehemiah by safeguarding him in the house of God, here's what he said. Should a man like me flee? And could one such as I go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Nehemiah intuitively knew this was all part of a plot. The fact is, one member of the enemy that we have been referencing had relatives in Jerusalem by way of marriage. So Nehemiah refused to retreat or hide from the enemy. Nehemiah knew that hiding expresses defeat, and that was not in his thinking, or the God-given action plans imparted to him. Folks, these messages went back and forth five times. As any quality leader would calculate, the enemy was attempting to wear them down. Remember it was said, For all of them were trying to frighten us, thinking they will become discouraged with the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. There's no way a human could have such wisdom, insight, and foresight. Nehemiah was literally being empowered by the living God. Since God saw, heard all the words spoken on both sides of this battle, God simply informed Nehemiah through divine wisdom not to submit to such ridiculous ideas. That brings us to the conspiracy. So let's talk about the conspiracy. After the enemy being rejected four times, Sanballat changes the game plan. He sends a letter with conspiratorial charges to Nehemiah and his people, obviously to destroy Nehemiah's standing with the people and to undermine his authority. So what was the conspiracy? 
The conspiracy was that Nehemiah was seeking the position of king of Judah. How ridiculous is that? This would threaten the king, and secondly, it would create a revolt in the land of Judah. So, Nehemiah responds with this, Such things as you are saying have not been done, but you are inventing them in your own mind. Well, how did it turn out for the enemy? Nehemiah proved that Tobiah and Sanballat hired these men to write the lies and attempt to create distrust between his king, the Jews, and Nehemiah. Finally proving this tactic was a madness method to kill Nehemiah and place fear in the workers' hearts, which would ultimately block them from finishing the wall. Another tactic is dead in the water. Let's review our four points of victory for our lesson today. Number one, talk is cheap. Believe God's words over that of man. This is absolutely critical. If you do not know the word of God well, when the enemy whispers these lies, conspiracies in your ears, you will believe them. Knowing the word of God and using the word of God as the sword through the Holy Spirit is the key for a believer's victory. Number two, ridicule. It's pointless and has the power to motivate a leader. Now that is if the leader decides to use ridicule to be motivated. But if ridicule creates disappointment and disappointment creates despair, then ridicule cannot be used to motivate. Number three, conspiracy. This is to be expected by quality leaders. If you're in leadership under God's command, I can guarantee you the enemy is going to use lies, lies, and more lies to try to create distrust and doubt in the people that are following you. Number four, proof. The best proof, of course, is in the results of the project. Now in Nehemiah's case, his project was almost complete. This is when the enemy is most threatened because there's only a few more bricks to put in place or a few more gates to be put up. So this is the striking time for the enemy to use his most deceptive form of conquering you as a leader or as a follower, and that is through conspiracy. In conclusion, I am wholeheartedly convinced that the number one enemy of all authentic believers, unity with each other, is the tongue. While we blame other things more closely aligned with overt sins, it is none other than the covert deception that pours forth from the tongue. The leading venue of destroying leaders of God is through the spreading of rumors, lies about the leader. Even though a quality leader can't prove their innocence, there's always believers who get caught up in the wake of the lies, resulting in never trusting the leader again. 
it is in this that the enemy finds his favorite tactic, conspiracies. The technique for leaders is to find the source of the lie and address them rather than the messengers who are hired to deliver the lie. This is what Nehemiah did. He went directly to the source by using the enemy's messengers. But it wasn't the gossip-spreading messengers. It was the one communicating from Nehemiah's camp to the enemy's camp. That's the key. However, in Nehemiah's case, no one was around to witness the truth of the messages. Thus he went to the heart of the enemy while being public about the venue and the attack. Lies, mocking, and ridicule impact all leaders. The question is, what will the leader do with the threat? Will he sink into fear, despair, and weaknesses? Or will he rise to the occasion and pierce the enemy's heart with the truth that will set his people free? Fact, Tobiah was Nehemiah's number one enemy, a true unbeliever, and he hated the ways of the God of Judah. Worse yet, inside the walls was a leader he could not bring down. And get this, Tobiah was related by marriage and by blood to Nehemiah's people inside the walls. But yet he was forced to walk away with his evil tail between his legs. Coming up next is number 12, The Wall is Finished. Mission Accomplished What a God-sized, magnificent accomplishment in 52 days. The wall was completed by the power of the living God through a leader who was a cup-bearing servant of an earthly king. Highly respected by the secular and the holy, the final brick that was laid by the hand of God through a weak and fearful people, God called his people. I think that God enjoys using the weaknesses of men to accomplish the significant miraculous work of his own kingdom. Nehemiah didn't survive the attacks. He dominated them with the wisdom imparted to him by God himself. Now it is time for him to lead these wavering people to Judaism, their traditions, customs, and certainly their doctrine. So in this next episode, we're going to talk about how victory robs the enemy of confidence. We'll go on to talk about the enemy realizes it was God who won the battle, not Nehemiah. Three, we're going to talk about while it was a great celebration, however, keep your sword handy. And then next, we're going to cover Victory Ignites Revival. That's probably one of the most significant doctrinal revelations that come out of the book of Nehemiah was the great revival of Judaism. 
Finally, we're going to discuss the highest positions are rewarded through the holy insight of a leader. Meaning, it was Nehemiah's obedience to the living God and to his earthly king and carrying out those orders in a respectable, obedient fashion. We appreciate you joining us today. We look forward to the up-and-coming episodes that provide for us details on how Nehemiah and how Nehemiah began to govern what he built. Until next time.